So <clears throat> we talked last year about, or last week about part of this, this season being the most wonderful season. Um, but there are definitely some ways that it's not. For me, ways that it's not is this, is that I really do not like assigned topics that I have to speak about. <clears throat> um, if you'll notice throughout the year, there's really only two times that I stick to whatever is going on in the rest of the world. And that is at Easter and at Christmas. The rest of the holidays, as you've probably noticed, don't exist to me because I just can't handle assigned topics. Um, <clears throat> it's one of the reasons that we don't follow the, uh, the lectionary because I, I just can't. You tell me I've got to talk about something and I'll stare at it for hours and hours and hours and come up with nothing. Um, <clears throat> but Christmas is one of those times that I really can't avoid it. Um, for two reasons. One, because, you know, it's Christmas time. Um, and number two, like Christmas and Easter, like those are, those are, those are the foundations of what we're all about. And so these things need addressed. And so as I look at these different topics, um, it's hard to come up with fresh ideas and things to say, just, just, just by show of hands, who's familiar with the Christmas story? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, so no pressure on me to get you to not zone out for 40 minutes um, while I sit up here and jibber-jabber about something. Um, and so <clears throat> one of the ways that I try and go about that, both with Christmas and Easter, is I try and look at all of the different characters in the stories and maybe try and find some off characters or, you know, some of the, some of the less focused on and see if there's interesting backstories and maybe, maybe try to tell a story, um, that you're, that you're not familiar with. Um, and so that's kind of the track that I want to take today, except for all the characters are really kind of known. And so it's hard. And so instead of thinking like, okay, well, is there a character in the Christmas story that we don't really know too much about, um, I, I decided to look at it a little different way and be like, okay, which character do you I most relate to in the Christmas story? And I was I was thinking about this whole thing, the, the Christmas story and how it all works and the pieces that went together and, and how it all goes. I, I, I kind of started thinking about the idea that going into the Christmas season, there are a lot of people who um, who've drifted from God. And who have, the things have happened, there's been questions, and they're kind of like, ah, eh, that's not, uh, I don't know about all that. And, and there's lots of reasons these things happen. People have bad church experiences, and so they equate God to the church experience that they had, and like, eh, I'm not into that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe as you got older, maybe your family moved, and wherever you went, you just never got back into church and just faded away from it. That happens sometimes. Um, a lot of times, as people get older, uh, get out of their uh, house and they go to either just work in the world or go to school, all of a sudden God doesn't seem that relevant to what's going on anymore. And they fade. Sometimes tragedies happen. Uh, marriages fall apart. Careers are lost. People pass away. And, you know, this causes people to, you know, really kind of question everything about God. Um, you know, sometimes people learn things. <laughs> sometimes, and this might sound weird, sometimes people kind of distance themselves from God because they read the Bible. There are some parts in the Bible that if you read them and you pay attention to what's being said, your reaction should be, wait, what? 
And so if you haven't read the Bible and had that reaction, well, then you, you haven't read all of the Bible because there's definitely some parts that make you want to be like, what? And then maybe for some people they've watched as, as people who um, they looked up to perhaps as good examples of Christians um, kind of have stood for some very non-Christian things. And they're like, well, okay. So I guess if they don't take some of these things serious, then maybe I shouldn't either. But there's just lots of things that could cause people to kind of distance themselves from God. And if you're not in that position, um, this idea works for you as well, because you're going to face a lot of these things in life as you go through life. These things are going to happen. And so as I was thinking about just all the characters and everything, I kind of, the idea of like, okay, well, the Christmas season, a lot of people might want to push back, but it really is a great time to re-engage or to go deeper within your faith. So as you're thinking about all of the Christmas characters in the story and whatnot, and and I was thinking, I'm like, what character do I most relate to? So I started going down the characters and maybe you have one that you relate to, but I started thinking about them. Mary, no, I can't really relate to any of that. Um, There's Joseph, maybe we don't really know much about Joseph. Um, so there's not really a whole lot to relate to there. Uh, the shepherds, no, they were scared. I ain't scared. Uh, no, the magi, I'm not sure what that is. So no, uh, baby Jesus, just all kinds of no. Um, I don't really, I'm not, I don't relate to that. So for me, as I was thinking about it, the character in the Christmas story that I relate to the most is the villain (laughs) is Herod. Um, some of you might be like, what? Hey, you relate to the villain? Yeah, I know it's hard for some of you to see. Ask my boys. They'll explain it. It, it makes sense to them <laughs> if I'm the, uh, that I would relate uh, to villain. But, but, but Herod was in power when Jesus was born. And, and he drove the Jewish people crazy um, because he was, the, he was the, the client king of Judea. Basically, Rome had put him in position of power and he was not a Jewish person. And this drove the Jewish people crazy. They did not like him at all, but he was in power. And Herod, as you go back and you look at his story in his life, Herod was, was very smart. He was very talented. He was very politically astute. He was ambitious. See, you're starting to see how I relate now, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, but he, and he was known back in that day. He was a builder. He built a, he built port cities. He built um, aqueducts. He, he rebuilt the Jewish temple, not as grand um, as the original, but he rebuilt the Jewish temple, all sorts of things. And his talent in this, or, in this area was extraordinary and he was well known for it, but his ambition ended up getting the best of him. It ended, up, uh, it ended up being his downfall. And this is where I think in me a lot, and perhaps in some of you, I think this is where some of us, maybe all of us have a little bit of Herod deep down inside of us. Now, before I get to the Bible part, I want to tell you um, the interesting story of Herod. So some of you may know this, some not, but if you remember back in high school or in college, wherever it might have been when you studied Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, he died by the hands of members of the Senate in the Senate. It was quite the, one of my proudest moments as a father was we've got a little dog named Brutus. 
He's about this big. And my boys argue as to who gets to sleep with Brutus at night. They rotate. <clears throat> my oldest son was in trouble one day, and he had kind of made um, his brother angry. Parents weren't happy with him. And he was in the room, and the dog was on the bed with him. We were all in the room, and his brother left upset, and mom left, and I went to leave. And when Brutus jumped down off the bed, Tech looks at him and he says, you too, Brutus? <laughs> now, he had no idea what he was saying. That made me proud, but, but he said it. it. It was quoted. My son's quoting it. So, <laughs> Caesar was murdered in the Senate, and that was, about, that was about 44 BC, before Jesus showed up on the scene. Um, and his nephew, Octavian, who would eventually go on to become Caesar Augustus, he was really upset about this. And his best friend, Mark Anthony, some of you have heard of Mark Anthony, they, they decided they were gonna avenge the death of Julius Caesar. So they went out and they began systematically killing all of the people um, who were responsible for the death of Caesar. Well, as this campaign kind of went on and the number of people who were still alive that were responsible for kind of this whole thing started to dwindle lower and lower and lower and people began to realize that, hmm, eventually all those people are gonna be dead and it's gonna be these two guys. Who, who's gonna take the power? And so people could kind of see coming down the road that there was gonna be this you know, kind of face off between these two because there can only be one sheriff in Rome. And both of these guys, as they were going through doing these things, were gaining more and more power. They were gaining more and more influence. And they had the loyalty, each of them, of a large number of Roman legions. So here's where Herod comes in. Herod had befriended Mark Antony. And so he decided that he was gonna be on that side. Well, newsflash, he picked the wrong side. He, he, did not, he did not choose well because Mark Antony, once this all was started going down, he was fairly quickly defeated and he hightailed it back to Alexandria to kind of, you know, hide back and just lay low back there. And with a short, within a short period of time, Octavius became Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Meanwhile, Herod's in Judea and he's thinking, uh-oh, I backed the wrong guy. And so now here I am appointed by Rome as a ruler over Judea, but I was for the other guy who was fighting against now the leader of Rome. So at this point, he basically had three options of things that he could do. One was he could run, but I mean, Rome was everywhere. They were going to find him. Two was he could kill himself because if he did that, at least it would be quick and fairly painless and he would be able to control it and he wouldn't go through any torture, any humiliations. And so that was an option. Um, or maybe he could hunker down and basically hope that they just ignored him. Um, but Herod was so ambitious and he was so about political power and advancement um, that he pulled an incredibly gutsy move. He's like, okay, if those are my three options, I'm gonna look at those and I'm gonna choose none of them. And so he didn't. And what he did turned out to be an absolutely brilliant political maneuver. He, he, here's what he did. He got on a boat 
And he went to the island of Rhodes where he knew Octavian was at the time. And he shows up and he essentially knocks on the door and asks to speak to the emperor, the most powerful man in the world. And everybody who first greeted him and saw him waiting and whatnot were basically looking at him like, why are you here? You picked the other guy. You are essentially an enemy of the state. How dare you show your face here? And I guarantee you, all of them thought he was not long for this world. So they tell Caesar, hey, Herod's here to see you. I'm sure he was shocked. He says, all right, let him in. And when Herod gets in to see Caesar, he gives this absolute amazing speech in front of Caesar and his whole court. And it kind of stuns everybody. Here's what he said when he got in front of Caesar. He said, as you know, I was a friend of your enemy, Mark Anthony. Now, he wasn't speaking English, so it probably sounded a lot cooler. Just make it sound cool in your head. I was a friend of your enemy. And as you know, I was a supporter of his from the beginning, through the civil war and all the way to the very end. So what you know about me is when I pledge my loyalty to someone, I am loyal to them until the end. And oh, great Caesar, I pledge my loyalty to you. Wow, that's pretty good, right? That, that, that's, that's making some lemonade out of lemons right there. And so Caesar Augustus, he was so impressed that not only did he not kill Herod right there on the spot, but he left him in charge of Judea. And not only did he leave him in charge of Judea because he was so impressed with the guts that he had and the way that he positioned himself, but he gave him Samaria and Jericho and Gaza as well. So through this maneuver, Herod not only avoided death, not only kept power, but found a way to expand his power all the while having backed the enemy of Caesar. That is someone who has some political skill. That is somebody who's smart. That is somebody who is ambitious. But the thing that got him into trouble was that he was so committed to control and he was so committed to his own legacy and what people would think about him that he began to make bad decisions. And it seemed as he got older and he became more obsessed with keeping this legacy and this control, it seemed his decision, his bad decisions started to compound and each one led to another. And here's some of the things that he did. He was very, he was very unpredictable. Well, unpredictable in a way, but predictable in others. He changed his will four times before he actually died. He had 10 wives and a whole bunch of sons. And so essentially what would happen is every few years he would decide, okay, this is the guy, this is the son that I want to take my place. He's the one that I think is going to carry out my legacy and continue what I've done. And then something would happen. And he would say, mm, no, 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 no. You're not the right son to be king. And he would change his will. But here is the bad, bad thing about that. Because it's okay, if you're next in line to be king, then the will change and you're not, uh, that's a bummer. But that, mm, there was a reason he changed his will because you had disappointed him somehow. So if you were a son and you were in the will to be the next king and you disappointed him, not only were you taking out of the will to be king, you were killed. That was the end of you as son. You were done. 
And so multiple times, the sons had disappointed Herod. And so he had the son killed and then put a new one in the will to be king. And eventually it got to the point <laughs> to where uh, the sons would be like, mm, thanks dad, but no thanks. I don't think I really want to be king. You can just, you can give that to my brother. In fact, let me pick a brother for you <laughs> to put in place to be the next king. But Herod was so committed to his legacy that he wanted his name on the throne forever. And just to make sure that no matter what happened in the future, his name stuck around, like all of his sons were named Herod's with something after, even his daughters were named Herodias because he wanted that name in there. And he wasn't just hard on his sons. He was hard on the rabbis. He had killed so many rabbi that eventually the rabbis of Israel started avoiding the city of Jerusalem because when Herod got mad, people died. When Herod got mad, there was destruction for anything that was in his path, anything in his line of sight. Now, when we get to the biblical narrative, that's all, that's all stuff you'll find in other history sources, not in the Bible. But when we get to the biblical narrative, when it comes to Herod, by this time, he's old. And not only is he old, but he's got a really painful kidney disease. And he's on his way out. So he's really sick. He's in a lot of pain, more grouchy than normal. And he's trying to consolidate his power so that his children can carry on his legacy. And then he gets the most disturbing news that he could possibly have received. Here's how Matthew begins the story. Chapter two, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked. Now imagine how this landed, this question. Knowing the background of what's going on, here are these guys wandering around Jerusalem asking this question. They ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? <laughs> to which anyone within earshot of that question was like, Shh, what are you doing? Don't, don't say this, don't say this. They said, we've come to Jerusalem. We know we're close. Where is he? They say, we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Perhaps as you've read through that story before, that sentence didn't quite make a whole lot of sense. Why would all of Jerusalem be disturbed? But knowing what we know, when Herod was disturbed, death was on the horizon. Destruction was coming and you dare not be in his path. And so when Herod heard that a new king had been born, you better believe all of Jerusalem was disturbed. So now he's an older man in pain. Suddenly his control of the kingdom, his legacy is at risk. So he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law. And you have to imagine this because when you get called before Herod, you're scared. This may be the end for you. Now he's called nearly everybody in all of Jerusalem who has any kind of knowledge or power whatsoever. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
And they're thinking, God, Harriet, you should know this. Every Jewish boy knows this. And they say what the prophet wrote. Here's what he wrote. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Again, this is the worst news imaginable for Herod. So Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from him them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go to worship him. Now, if we had fact checkers back then, <laughs> if, we were able to, if we were able to label statements made by leaders with a number of Pinocchios back then. <laughs> this would have been a five Pinocchio uh, line here so that he could go and worship him too. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Now, this word worshiped in modern church and modern Christianity, we've kind of turned that word into singing. Like, okay, we're going to have the worship service. Well, that's the singing part. But that's not, singing is not worship. Worship is recognizing that you are in the presence of someone who should cause you to be in awe. And then doing whatever you need to do physically and mentally to submit yourself to that. That's what worship is. So these wealthy men who had traveled a long, long way find themselves in the presence of this child with no physical power whatsoever. But because of who they believed the child to be, they were in awe and they dropped to their knees and they worshiped him. Meanwhile, five miles down the road, which doesn't sound far to us now with our motor carriages, but back then that was quite a distance. Five miles down the road, Herod's worried to death. He's freaking out. He's like, where are they? They were supposed to report back to me, these guys. Have you seen them? Do we know where this king is? Have they found them? Because his whole life, his whole life had been around preserve, protect, control, preserve, protect, control, preserve, protect, control. He was obsessed. It was what he was about. And he's not about to bend his knee or bow down before anyone. And this is why I say there's the potential for there to be a little bit of Herod in all of us. Because listen, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't mind leveraging God if it will help us build our kingdom. We don't mind doing the God things if it's gonna help us get what it is that we want. We don't mind going to church. We don't mind reading our Bibles. We don't mind saying a prayer. If all these things will help me facilitate my future and help me to achieve what I want to achieve, sure, I'll do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the whole idea of actual worship, 
That is complete surrender. Writing God a blank check with your life. The whole idea of, of waking up and your interaction with God being God, I don't know what the question is, but the answer is yes. Now tell me. That doesn't come natural to us. That's not the first, that's not the first inclination for any of us because there's a little Herod in all of us. The story keeps going. He says, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, that is the Magi, returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he, Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And if this were a movie, the soundtrack would be building. Things would be getting intense. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And a furious Herod was no good for anyone around him. When Herod was furious, people suffered. When Herod was furious, people died. He spent his entire life doing everything within his power to control outcomes. No matter what happened, no matter how things went, he found a way to control it. Remember, he even bet and sided with the wrong person in the fight over the rule of Rome, but yet somehow he was crafty enough to control the outcome and use it to benefit himself. Herod, as much as almost anybody else that we see in the scripture, was the master of outsmarting destiny. But now he found himself outsmarted by a child and a couple Jewish parents. He was furious, but he knew he was good at controlling outcomes. And so he decided he would not allow this one to stand. So he gave an order to his soldiers that you and I cannot even imagine people actually carrying out. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. I can't imagine the pain in Bethlehem as young boys were slaughtered in front of their parents who were powerless to do anything, who they themselves were killed if they tried to intervene and stop it. He said, fine, you're not gonna bring this child to me. I'll kill them all. You're not gonna give me the location of the one. Fine, I'll kill many. Makes no difference to me. And so they did. One horrible morning, soldiers went into every single house in all of Jerusalem and the surrounding area and pulled out any little boy that looked to be of that age and ran their swords through them. But soon after that, Herod died a horribly painful birth, uh, death. 
It was so painful. The disease that he had had gotten so bad that he had tried to commit suicide. And the only reason that he wasn't successful is because, <clears throat> is because his cousin walked in on him when he was doing it and ended up saving him. But just before he died, Herod, who was just probably one of the worst people you can imagine, gave a command. And the command was, I want you to round up all of the wealthy and influential and distinguished men in Jerusalem. And on the hour that I die, I want you to execute all of them because I want there to be mourning and sorrow in Jerusalem on the day of my death. This is how terrible of a person he was. Luckily, nobody liked him. And when Herod died, they opened up the gates and let all of those guys free. And so instead of mourning in Jerusalem on the day of Herod's death, there was much rejoicing and much relief. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And here's a twist in history. Because Herod, who at that point was known as Herod the Great, Herod the Great, who had done everything that he could to establish his legacy, became a footnote in the story of Jesus the child. After all he had done to, to control his legacy, he becomes a footnote in the birth of a child. And Herod was five miles away from the birth of the Son of God. And he missed his opportunity. He missed it. 80 years later, Herod's long gone. He's remembered for his cruelty by the people who were still alive and remember him at that time. Jesus had grown up, died on the cross, been resurrected, ascended to be with God. Caesar's gone. Nero's gone. Tiberius is gone. The temple has been completely destroyed. And John the Apostle, who we talked about last week, who had firsthand knowledge of this story as he had cared for Jesus, for Mary after Jesus' death. John, who had experienced the resurrection firsthand, he writes this, John chapter one. In him was, past tense, in him was life. And that life was, past tense again, the light of all mankind. And then as John's writing here, he, he switches and he moves from past tense to present tense. And I think this was intentional to send us a message. He says, the light shines. Present tense, Emmanuel, God with us. The light shines in the darkness. In other words, he's saying, whatever you've experienced, whatever you've gone through, whatever has caused you to drift away from God or to question or to walk away from it, John experienced it worse. And we detailed a lot of what he had experienced last week. 
Yet he looks back over all of it and he says, the light is still shining. It has not been put out. And then he punctuates it with this powerful remark. He says, the light shines, present tense, in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That brings us to you and to me. What will your story be when it comes to your relationship to the light of the world? That light that has not been put out. Will your personal story be a story of resistance, of pushing back, of doubting? Or will your story be one of worship? Are you going to spend your whole life, like Herod, trying to build your personal kingdom and gain what it is that you can gain during your span on this earth? Or are you going to choose to participate in the story of God and to place value on the things that God places value on? Will you cling to those things that in the end you are going to lose anyway in the same way that Herod lost everything, even the legacy he was trying to build? Or will you become someone who has surrendered everything because you know that really none of it is yours anyway? That it has been given to you from God. Will your story be one about your way or God's way? In other words, are you going to be Christmas? That is that light that has not been put out by the darkness, that, that's in you. And this Christmas season leading up to it, this is the light being introduced into the world. Are, are, are you going to be Christmas to those around you? being that light in those areas and those spaces of darkness. And the reason there's a tension between all of these things is because we're human. And there's a little bit of Herod in all of us and that desire to gain and to control. And listen, one day somebody is going to tell your story. Maybe not because you're famous. Maybe and not to get too morbid down in here, but we all get a little bit of our story told when we die. Somebody's going to sit around and tell a story. Maybe somebody at a service is going to stand up and talk about, I remember when. And when they tell your story, what story are they going to tell? Will they be able to tell about a life surrendered to God? Are they going to be able to tell a story about a life who was dedicated to others? Or are they going to be, have to be really creative to come up with something of value that you left? I've been to a lot of funeral services and there, there's nothing as sad as people trying to find something nice to say about a person who lived a life that was all about themselves. Will they be able to say that no matter how hard the darkness tried, that the light inside of you would not be put out? Because even now, no matter how dark things may seem, no matter how difficult 
circumstances are around you. No matter how terrible your family may be this Christmas time. Wait, Andy, I thought you said you were going to talk about how to deal with your families eh, eh, next week. You have an opportunity in all of it to be a light. You have an opportunity to be a little bit of Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this season. Lord, I thank you for what it represents. I thank you for the reminder that it is of who you are and what you have done for us. And Father, I pray that as we're going through this season and it is so easy to become focused on such the wrong thing during the Christmas season as it becomes all about who and what and where and the things we're trying to buy and it just can, accumulation. Father, I pray that you constantly bring to the front of our mind what this is all really about. And not only what it's all about, but that a part of what it is is inside of us. And we have the opportunity in a season that can be so dark for so many people. We have an opportunity to be a light. Lord, let us be people who the light of your son, the light of the world shines through and brings hope in this Christmas season. And Lord, we are in awe of you and we worship you and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be a representative of you. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Christmas party tonight. Be there. It's awesome. If not, you can still come next week. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas.